Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. We're going to get straight into it. Now, obviously, we've got children and the children have their packs as well. So if you want to be doing some of that, that's okay. Parents, if they're making noise, that's okay. It's part of being a a family on mission, being a family together. If your children are yelling, that's great. Often ever done, there's people whose children run right up and come and give a high five. It's okay. It's good. It's good because we're in it together and we want to build households of faith. Amen. We want to raise our children in the way they should go. Um, and so that's an important thing. So we are in the book of First Kings here at Allgay. And it's exciting to explore some of the life of Solomon and what God has done uh, through Solomon, what his word is to us in the life of Solomon. And today we come to two chapters of Scripture. I promise I'm not going to read them all out word for word. Uh, but chapter 6 and chapter 7, where we're looking at the temple. Uh, and a message that I am calling the dwelling place. So if you're a note taker, it's good to be a note taker. You can put that title down, the dwelling place, as we explore, uh, explore the temple together today. And I just have a couple of quick disclaimers. The first one is, I, the Lord has been putting this idea of the temple on my heart for probably the last two or three years. There's, he's just been doing something in my life and there's, I have reams and reams and reams of notes, right? So there's no way that in 35 minutes I've got to be able to cover everything. So just pray for me that the Lord will direct those thoughts and just only what He wants to say. Uh, we're going to be doing a series on this later in Vedan, so a whole series on just a couple of chapters around the temple and what God would say to us through the temple. I think there's a book in it maybe in the future. Like there's so much to talk about. So that's the first disclaimer. The second disclaimer is the last time I spoke about this was to our worship leaders. Uh, we gathered as a worship leader group and we talked about the pattern of worship and we talked about the temple and what that means for us today as the church. And I literally, I think I cried for 98% of the time, it was a bit of a blubbering mess. If that happens again, it's okay. It's just, I'm just having a moment with Jesus. I promise I'm all right. Uh, I prayed that it wouldn't happen again. But for some reason, when I talk about the temple and I talk about what Jesus has done, I, I just start crying. So just pray for me in that as well. That I'm not a blubbering mess. All right. First Kings chapter six. Let's go to the word. I'm just going to read a few verses as we start this off. In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, everyone say Ziv, this, don't you love the, uh, the Jewish months? The second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 27 metres long, uh, 20 cubits wide, so nine metres wide, and 30 cubits high, which means 14 metres high. It's a significant building. You with me? The portico at the front of the main hall of the temple extended to the width of the temple, that is 20 cubits, and projected 10 cubits from the front of the temple. He made narrow windows high up in the temple walls 
Against the walls of the main hall and the inner sanctuary, he built a structure against the building in which there were side rooms. The lowest floors were five cubits wide, the middle floor six cubits, and the third uh, floor seven. He made offset ledges around the outside of the temple so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used and no hammer, chisel or any iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. Now, everyone here except for Cheng probably just got lost. If, unless you're an architect, an architect's are like, ooh, measurements and in, interior walls and structures and they're already building things. But most of us, as we read that, about halfway through, you started thinking about what's coming for lunch. Yeah. Amen? <laughs> and if you're anything like me, as you start reading cubits and... As we, if, if I kept going, it's, li- it's like four pages of cubits and cherubim and palm trees and gold and stones and quarries and cutting. And you literally, you go, oh, for goodness sakes, this is hard work. So here's what I thought I'd do. Rather than reading two chapters of scripture straight out, I thought I'd show you. And here's the beauty of the technology that we have today is that some very clever people have created a 3D artistic impression of all the detail that is portrayed in 1 Kings 6, 7 and over in, uh, in, the, in Chronicles as well. So let's take a moment as we paint the picture of what it is you are, what we're talking about here. And I pray that as you see it, something just grabs you. Because when I see this, something just grabs me. So let's, let's show that video now.
It's a pretty extraordinary building, isn't it? 27 metres long, 9 metres wide, 14 metres high, built out of stone cut in a quarry and transported all the way to the Temple Mount to fulfil Deuteronomy 27, 28, that not an iron tool or a sharpened tool or an iron chisel would be used to build an altar for the Lord. Uh, uh, just phenomenal, covered in wood all the way, not a single stone could be seen on the inside and then the holy place and the holy of holies completely overlaid with pure gold. Absolutely extraordinary. It took seven years to build, which I think, again, seven being the number of perfection, there's something very significant about seven. This is the most extraordinary building. Uh, not in the very, the, the first people who talked about the ancient wonders of the world, not included in the original seven ancient wonders, but later has been put as one of the, the ancient wonders of the world. The most extraordinary building you'll ever read about, see, and yet what I want us to understand today is that this is so much more than a building. What I'm going to admit right now may ruin my reputation in that one of my most favourite movies is a movie called Notting Hill. Do I have any Notting Hill fans in the place? I can already see people... Someone just shook their head at me like, oh dear. I just love it. I, I don't know why, but I love not. I just think it's a beautiful movie. I love British humour. I think it's this glorious movie. And one of my, one of the great scenes that as I've been reading this and thinking about uh, is the scene where um, Hugh Grant's character brings, you know, Anna Scott, his girlfriend, to, the, to his friend's birthday dinner. Who's with me right now with Notting Hill? Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, go watch Notting Hill. It's a lovely little feel-good movie. Anyway, Anna Scott is this, like, the world's most famous movie star, right? That's the idea. She's the world's most famous American movie star and she meets this guy in England who is a boring... He just owns this tiny little bookstore. The whole idea is that he's nothing and he's a complete nobody. She's the world's most fam famous movie star. They have this random event where they meet each other and lo and behold, she likes him and he takes her to dinner. And so walks in to a family dinner with a bunch of friends and the first couple of friends who meet her, it's a very funny interaction with inappropriate language occasionally, but it's British and it's funny. Anyway, basically their initial reaction for the first few people who meet her are what you would expect if you've met the world's most famous movie star, which is, oh my goodness. <laughs> falling on, you know, falling on their knees basically, worshipping this person who's like, you're Anna Scott. Except for the last guy who comes along. I think his name's Bernie in the movie. And Bernie comes along and walks in. They're all sort of looking at Bernie, how he's going to react. And Bernie just walks in. He goes, he's just chatting about his life and his day and how hard it was. And they're like, oh, Bernie, this is, this is Anna. He goes, oh, hello, Anna. Lovely to meet you. And he just keeps on going. And he has no idea who she is. And then later on, he sits down with her and has this conversation with her about what he does for a living. And then he says to her, what do you do? She's like, well, I'm an actress or an actor. He goes, oh, that's a tough living, isn't it? <laughs> He's carrying on about, you know, well, you know, for example, what did you make in your last movie? Just a few quid? It's really difficult. She goes, $20 million. <laughs> and he's like, oh, so you're doing okay then? <laughs> 
Still has no idea who she is until the dinner, like you get halfway through, Anna goes to the toilet. Long story short, he finds out that it's Anna Scott. He's like, oh, he couldn't believe it. And as I was reading this passage and thinking about it, I was like, sometimes I think we get a little bit like that with, with some of these significant things in scripture that we, we just gloss over and read, but we miss what it's actually meaning. We miss the significance. We miss Anna Scott. Because I think God, all through Scripture, has put Anna Scott moments. And the temple is one of them. We would call them mega themes, or you might even say a meta theme. It's a theme that runs all through the pages of Scripture. And it might not be specifically constantly mentioned, but it's, it's there if we're prepared to dive deep, deep enough and actually see the significance of who the person is or, or what the building is or what the moment is, what the, what the ritual is that the scripture is talking about. Sometimes we miss the Anna Scots. And my prayer today is that all of us have a Bernie moment today where our eyes are opened and all of us see the, the spiritual, the theological Anna Scott in this, Right? And sometimes we miss it because we're ignorant. The other reason that we miss the significance is not just because we're ignorant, but it's because we're too familiar. Uh, anyone been to Europe and had the privilege of going and looking in some of those, uh, the most amazing museums? Anyone been there and seen some of the world's most famous things? Many years ago, we, we visited, uh, we went to Europe and we went and saw the Mona Lisa. And, uh, oh, but it's not. And I'll never forget that because I'm like, I'm not, I'm not an artist. And so I didn't know that I would have this response. But I remember walking into that room and our guide sort of stands out the front talking about what we're about to see. The Mona Lisa, he talks, says a few things and you walk into this room and there's all these enormous paintings all over the walls and there's this tiny little thing up on one wall, which is the Mona Lisa. And I'll never forget our guide. Our guide walks in, puts his head down and just bursts his way through the crowd to get out of the room onto the other side. And he says, I'll see you in five minutes. And I remember walking in and I literally had a moment where it took my breath away. I know. I know that seems weird because it's just a painting. But it's not just a painting. The Mona Lisa is so much more than a painting. It's history. It's da Vinci. You know, it speaks to, to human ingenuity. It speaks to transformation of human society, Renaissance. It speaks to all these incredible things that were going on in the time. And I, was, I literally had a moment where I stood there and went, oh, like, that's the Mona Lisa right in front of me. But my guide didn't see it. The guide just went straight through on the other side and I realised, I thought, he's become so familiar with this artwork, it no longer takes his breath away. He no longer walks in there and sees it for what it is. It's now just a famous painting on a wall that he doesn't really care about. And I think sometimes in the church we get like that too. Amen? We become so familiar. If we've grown up in the church, we've read the scriptures, we've gone through, we've heard about the temple. Some of you have read those chapters in your Bible reading plans as you've gone through the Bible in a year and you get to 1 Kings and you skim read because then, gosh, it's boring. It's just detail. Let's just move on and get to the fun bits. But what we have to understand is all of the detail is so important because the detail in what we just saw 
It's not just a building. It's not just a grand thing that Solomon built. It's actually something that points backwards to the beginning of time and it's something that points forwards to the end of time and all of it prophetically speaks to the purpose of God and the pattern by which we approach His glory. And when we see it rightly, we will have a Bernie moment. We will have a breathless moment of going, oh my goodness, that's what this means. That's the fullness of what God has done. That is what this building stands for. And that's my prayer for us this morning is that we catch the tiniest glimpse of who God is, of what he has done and will come again and do for all those who would bow the knee and say yes to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. That's my prayer today. So Lord, would you do it in Jesus' name? Would you illuminate your word to our hearts? Would you teach us something? Would you captivate our souls? And would you cause us to be a people whose lives are devoted to you in worship and honour and humble servitude, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So with that being said, is it okay if for five minutes I just get a bit of Bible geek on? Is that all right? Are we okay with that? Yeah, good. All right, I'm just going to nerd out for a moment. Now, I've got my whiteboard. And what I want us to see this morning, as I said, it's more than a building, but the temple is actually a dwelling place. And the temple is one of seven dwelling places in Scripture. Again, seven. The number of perfection. There's something significant about that. So it's one of seven dwelling places in Scripture. We're going to, on the board, we're going to talk about four. We'll talk about the Old Testament dwelling places. And then up on the screen, we'll talk, well, we'll talk three on the board. And then we'll talk about the others in a second. So here's what I want you to understand. As we looked at that video and as we read some of the cubits, what we saw was what? We saw cherubim. We saw palm trees, we saw flowers, we saw an outer court, we saw an inner room, we saw the inmost room, the Holy of Holies. And you think, gosh, this is glorious. It's gold, it's wonderful, it's incredible. But all of it is speaking all the way back to the book of Genesis for the very first dwelling place. See, in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, we read something. And let's, uh, we're going to have that up on the screen if you can see it. Genesis 2, 4, verse, 4 through to 9. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what did we just read? The Genesis account, what we see is broad picture. God creates the heavens and the earth 
this big picture. And in the middle of the earth, he plants a garden, which we know as Eden. And in the middle of Eden, he plants a tree, the tree of life which represents his presence, which represents who he is. So we see three things. We see, we see the creation, we see the earth, we see the garden, the garden of Eden, and we see this hot spot of his presence, the tree of life. And he does what in this place? Dwells. Who did he put in there? He put Adam and then later Eve. So humanity dwells with God in the garden. We dwell with God and they have access to everything. How do Adam and Eve get to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because they have access. They have access to the hotspot. There is the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is literally the, very, the tree of life symbolising God himself who is life. They have access to the fullness of God's presence and then they have access to this potential disobedience of, who, of what God has called them to. And God says, you have complete freedom. I am dwelling with you in fullness in Genesis. Then what happens? We know the story. They sin and then what happens to them? They're thrown out. They're not thrown out of the earth. They're thrown out of the garden. They dwell out here. And then we see Cain and Abel and they try and come back in. They try and make a sacrifice and that leads to more sin, right? And that, there's a whole picture there which I can't go into. And so then we see stuff gets worse and worse and worse and ultimately Genesis just cascades away and they end up in slavery in Egypt And then as you keep reading and you get to the book of Exodus, you see this phenomenal thing because God has actually said, you're not coming back into my presence. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to put cherubim to guard the the garden. You can't enter the garden. What was on the walls of the temple? Cherubim. Hopefully it's starting to twig already, what it's starting to push to. So we see here's your first dwelling place. This is the creation ideal, we would call it. This is what we're made for. This is why humanity was created, why we exist. It's that we would dwell in the presence of the living God, that we would dwell in harmony with the living God, that heaven and earth would be one, that the transcendent would come to to the natural and that we would have this incredible moment where God indwells His people where we are one together. That is what we were created for. That's the Genesis picture at the beginning of Scripture and humans walk away. We make our mistakes and then we see this second dwelling place and the second dwelling place, hopefully that pen's okay, is what we would call Sinai that we see in the book. Go to to Exodus. Exodus chapter 19, you see Mount Sinai. Israel has come out of captivity. They've come out of slavery. And God, the first thing He does after He parts the Red Seas, they go through, what does He say to them? What's the command? Go to Mount Sinai to do what? 
to worship. What is worship? Worship is what we see in the garden. Worship, true worship, is a response to an encounter with the living God. And we, we will offer worth, we will give honour, like we, all through, again, all through Scripture, human beings worship a whole variety of things and you can have false worship where you're worshipping idols, where you're bowing down, you're surrendering your life to an idol, but there's no power in that. There's no encounter in that. But every time true and proper worship happens, there is an encounter in Scripture where God meets His people, right? And in Sinai, thank you, brother. Hopefully that one works. In Sinai, we see something. We see something fascinating. This time, instead of that's the horizontal bird's eye view, this is the vertical view. We see a mountain on Sinai. And as you read Exodus 19, God calls the people where? To the base of the mountain. Then he calls 70 elders and Moses and Joshua up the mountain. He says, come and, come and be here. And you see that they have this incredible encounter. In Exodus 19, these 70 begin to see something of God. Not the full encounter, but they encounter something of His presence. Read Exodus 19. It's phenomenal. But then God's not done. He comes as a cloud of fire on the top of the mountain in a powerful way. And He says He calls Moses up. And I think Joshua... We can debate that theologically later, but I feel when I read Scripture, it's pretty clear that Joshua went with Moses up the mountain and he goes all the way up to the hotspot of God's presence and he stays there for 40 days having some sort of powerful encounter with God. He encounters the living God. Maybe not in the fullness of His glory because He died, but He sees something. And then God says to him, go and build according to the pattern. Go and build according to what you have seen. So when Moses is up here encountering the presence, the hotspot of God's presence, God's not just giving him instructions of how to go and do the next thing. He's seeing God in His glorious, heavenly, eternal temple. He's seeing God in Eden. We are seeing heaven meet earth and Moses gets to encounter it. Now, what do we see? We see an, an flipper. It's an outer court. There's an inner court and a hot spot. Are you with me? If you flip it and look down, that's exactly what you see. What is this a representation of? It's an Eden ideal. It's a picture. It's a shadow. It's not perfect. But it's a shadow of what is to come. And it so captivates Moses. And he gets this picture and this command from God to say, now we've got to show this to the people of Israel. And then he establishes the third dwelling place. Who knows what it is? It's the tabernacle. How are you going, church? The tabernacle design. What do we see? You see the outer? The outer courts with the wall, you see the inner, the holy place. And then what do you see in the middle? The holy of holies, the hot spot of God's presence. You see this intermediary space that only the priests could go, just the 70 and the place where others could dwell. What is it a picture of? 
It's the Eden ideal. Are you seeing this? Does this not blow your minds? (laughs) We see the tabernacle is the exact representation of Eden. It's a shadow. It's not perfect. It's, It's constructed by a human being, but it's the pattern of heaven. It's the pattern, the means by which God wants to encounter humanity. And we see it at Sinai and we see it in the tabernacle. Now, when we watched that video just then, and we saw what the temple is, which was a picture given to David in 1 Chronicles 20, uh, 28. David has this thing where he's like, I have seen the plan of God and he establishes the temple. Now, what does the temple look like? Can we now throw that up on the screen and I'll get rid of this? So, thanks, Cam. Let's throw the floor plan of the temple up there. What do you see? You see Eden. You see Eden. You see the pattern of Eden. There's the outer, there's the inner, the holy place, and there's the holy of holies. Now, why do you think that uh, even the tabernacle and the temple, why do you think the tabernacle and the temple both had all this imagery of flowers, of palm trees, of pomegranates, of gold, of, of glory, of precious gems. Why do you think that's there? Is it just because Solomon's like, look how wealthy I am and God deserves a grand building? Or is there something more to it? There's more to it. Because, because he's caught a picture of the heavenly place. And the best way that we could represent glory is like, what's the most precious thing I can possibly put in to represent God's presence? Gold. It's got to be laced with gold. But it's more than that. There's a garden. Like it's Eden. It's this picture of God's fruitfulness and God's glory and His, and His wonder. So let's, let's put palm trees and pomegranates and flowers and show that this is an, a shadow. It's an earthly representation of a heavenly reality of God dwelling with His people. And so the temple, what we are looking at right here, it points back. And every time Israel came, they didn't just come to do religious duties. And when they did, God scolded them. I read this morning in the book of Isaiah, I read that God says, your feet, I'm sick of them. You're not doing, you haven't caught it. You're just doing religious stuff. You've missed the encounter because when you have the encounter, that will overflow in acts of righteousness and justice and mercy and love. It's like there's no transformation because there's no encounter because you're doing religion, but that's not what this is about. This is about a dwelling place where God dwells with humanity. It is a shadow. It's a picture of heaven meeting earth of transcendence coming to the temporal. And it points us back to Eden, but it does more than that, church. It points us forward to a promise. That is the purpose. So we have the picture of the temple. We have the purpose of the temple to point us back and remind us and point us forward to a promise. And that promise is outworked in the pattern. Who's with me? How are we going this morning, church? I get excited about this stuff. You see, there's a promise in the pattern of how the temple works. So look at this. Here you have, you've got the outer court. People would come. Hold it together, shepherd. You would come 
you would, you would enter the courts with thanksgiving and praise. Why? Because you know that this is where God dwells and is impossible when you see God rightly for who he truly is in the midst of whatever is going on in our world, whatever is going on in our life. Imogen said it so beautifully earlier. There is reason to rejoice. And too often as the church, we get so caught in our temporal focus. We get so caught up in our own stuff that we forget to lift our eyes to the Eden ideal and say, thank you, Lord, that you've made a way. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace. Because as you come in to the gates, as you enter the gates, what is standing right there? What is the big thing that your eyes can't help but miss? We saw it in the video. The first thing it showed us is an altar. And I want you to catch this church for a second. When you have a festival and you have literally a million people coming, and you have an altar and you have priests performing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Think of this, millions, literally millions of animals being sacrificed on an altar over the course of one week. That thing is an abattoir. Who's ever smelt an abattoir before? It's not pleasing or pleasant. We need to understand that priests, as they were ministering before the Lord, priests literally had blood Ankle deep. So you've got a temple, which we just saw, where you have the holy place, which is gold and glorious, the most majestic building, and right at the front of it is blood ankle deep. At an altar and a washing bowl. And as the people you come in celebrating and there's joy and all of a sudden there is a very stark reminder that the only way because of our sinfulness that I can get from here to the hot spot, to the tree of life, to what I'm created for is if I go through an altar. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see what it's pointing to? Do you see what it's pointing to? Go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 12, sorry, Matthew 12, verse 6. Got my 12s and 6s around the wrong way. Because Jesus comes along. And in Matthew 12, 6, Jesus says this. I tell you, actually, let's just read from verse 3. It's not going to be up on the screen, but I'll read it and then we'll get to verse 6. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? These are the religious leaders questioning Jesus. He entered the house of God, the, the the tabernacle at the time and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for them to do but only the priests or haven't you read in the law that the priests on sabbath duty in the temple uh, desecrate the sabbath and yet are innocent in that i tell you something greater than the temple is here if you had not known these words I, words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice you would not have condemned the innocent for the son of man is lord of the sabbath what you need to understand here is that Jesus is declaring something about himself. He is saying that I am the temple. I am the dwelling place. Eden, Sinai, tabernacle, temple, Christ. That he is the dwelling place. God dwelling with humanity. He is that transcendent coming to the temporal. That is who Jesus is. 
He is the Eden ideal coming to manifest the presence of God with humanity and draw us back to the created ideal, the Eden ideal. I know this is Bible like up here, but I'm just praying that God's doing something in you right now. That's who Christ is. Now go back to the temple picture. What is it revealing to us about the means by which we would gain access to the presence? Sacrifice. What is Jesus talking about the whole time to his disciples? I've got to die. I've got to die. What does he say in the book of John? He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. What's he talking about? Himself. He's saying, I'm the temple and I'm going to go on that altar, the altar which is a cross. I'm going to die on a tree so that you might come back to the tree. You sinned at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You were born for the tree of life. So I'm going to suffer on a tree and die on a tree and hang on a tree so that humanity might come back to the tree of life and live in the eternal purpose of God to dwell together. It's beautiful, church. And so Jesus fulfills all the rituals of the temple. And that's why when he hangs on the cross, it says the curtain which separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the presence of God was torn in two from top to bottom. He's saying, I now dwell with humanity again. Which is why as you keep reading, you come to the sixth temple, the sixth dwelling place, which is the, anybody? The church. Let's go to some scripture. You see, when you get to Ephesians 2, Paul says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a what? Into a what? Thank you. A holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a what? Dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 1 Peter 2.5, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? 2 Corinthians 6, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. The church is the dwelling place. The church is the place where God, Christ, when He, when he ascended on high, sent His Spirit to the church to indwell the people of God. That we would know that that God is with humanity and the church is supposed to be the representation of that on the earth. The church is supposed to be the temple, the temple. You could not deny that. Imagine being someone from any other nation as you, as you went on a holiday and you went to Jerusalem. Could you miss the temple? Think about how we go on, we go on well, we used to go on international holidays and you go and visit what? Cathedrals. All of those things are supposed to point to the glory of God. The temple was the the epitome of that, where people would look at it and go, not, wow, this is a great building, but look at their God. That's what the church is supposed to be. 
that we would be a people whom God dwells and that the rest of the world looks at and goes, wow. That they would know we're Christians by our love, that there would be something different about us, that we would be set apart, that yes, they would hate some of the things we stand for, but they would be captivated by the way we outwork that in the world. We're supposed to be different because the Spirit of God indwells the people of God. And here's the thing that I've been praying about and thinking about. Why are we not? And I think the reason, the more I pray about it, is because we've forgotten the altar. Yes, we know Jesus died for us. We know that he died on an altar for us. But we forget the fact that his command to us is pick up your cross and come follow me. We forget that the command and the call of Christ is not to comfort but to a cross. And as we come to the cross, that's when we get the crown. That we are called to a life laid down, dying to self, coming alive to Christ. That we are called to the altar. And it's in the altar where the old life dies, where the me dies and then the Christ comes alive where the spirit infills me and I become the new creation that God has called me to be and my life begins to look different not yet perfect I am the righteousness of God in Christ but I'm still in the flesh so it's still a shadow of the final temple you're doing awesome we're almost there it's still a shadow of the final temple which we see in Revelation 22 Flip on over. How we doing, church? Revelation 22. Look at verse 1. Guess what it's titled? Eden Restored. Oh, does that not get anyone else a bit excited? We saw it at the beginning. We see it at the end. What's the whole purpose of God? Eden Restored. The whole story of the Scripture is about Eden Restored. The whole thing is about God dwelling with humanity. Everything else is the overflow of that. It's intimacy, it's relationship. First and foremost, everything else will flow. Eden Restored, verse 1, 22. Then the angel showed me the the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the... Stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and the servants will serve Him. They will see His face as we did in Eden. And His name will be on their foreheads. I don't think we'll literally have Jesus on our foreheads. I think that's a metaphor. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What's missing? What's missing from Eden? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a river. There's a tree. There's God, there's humanity, but there's no tree of knowledge and good and evil. 
because evil's been defeated and destroyed and we've been restored to that which we we were created for from the beginning. And the reason there is no tree of knowledge of good and evil is because Jesus hung on a tree and the living God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity will be the only person in all of eternity with scars. It says there'll be no more tears. For us, we will not have scars. We will be a resurrected body. The brokenness will be gone. But there will be God himself with holes in his hands and holes in his feet and a hole on his side showing this is what I went through for you. I laid down my life on the altar so you could be here by faith in me. And that should lead us to a life of worship, a life of praise, a life of honour, a life of, yes, rejoicing in the midst of sorrow and sadness. Come on, somebody. This is good news. This is good news. This is what the temple is all about. It's not just a building. She's not just an actress. It's Anna Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Only so much better. That's what the temple is about. And so what does it mean for us? It means, yes, Psalm 100, we enter the courts with thanksgiving and praise. The gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. That's what we do. We come before the King of Kings and we lay our lives down on the altar and say, Lord, use me, take me, renew me, restore me, send me. I am yours. If you want me to sweep floors as a janitor or you want me to preach, I don't care what it is, just have my life. A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your what? Your spiritual act of worship. Worship is not a song. Church is not a building. Church is not a gathering. Church is not an event. It is a people filled with the Holy Spirit on about the mission of God as we lay our lives down for the kingdom of God. And it's a life of reverence. It's a life that has been bought at a price. So we live for truth. We know the story. One of my dear friends just bought a T-shirt and he says, I know how the story ends. God wins. (laughs) Does that not give us hope? When we look at the world right now, we just prayed over a really, really tough situation. And our dear brother's just run off to go and be with his wife in intensive care. And his sisters had to run off because his son's crying because he doesn't know where daddy is or mummy is. But are we without hope? No, because we know how the story ends. Because there's a temple in the pages of Scripture. There's a tabernacle. There's Sinai. There's Eden. There's Christ. There's a church. And there's a promise. That because of the pattern, because of what Christ went through, which doesn't change. The the pattern never changes, just the means of access through the body of Christ. We have hope, an eternal hope that far outweighs whatever present suffering we might go through. And it says in the Scriptures that these light and momentary struggles. Do you realise what Paul was going through? Stoned half to death, beaten, watching Christians being murdered, left runs. He was going through a lot and he called them light and momentary afflictions. He says they're bearing up for us an eternal weight of glory. 
that we might come into the presence of the living God and worship Him. Band, you can come up and we are going to pray. I hope and I pray, I know that that's a lot for a Sunday morning. As I said, I realise that. But my prayer is you caught something today, that the temple is so much more than a building, that 1 Kings 6 and 7 is so much more than something just to breeze over. And my prayer for us this week, and this is my encouragement to all of us this week, sit in it. Can we do that? Just sit in it. Just, just pause on 1 Kings 6 and 7 and let, let the imagery flow. Let it sink in, the altar, the washing, the showbread that we would take of the body of Christ. The, the holy place, the untouchable presence of God which has come to humanity. And may it lead us to a life of praise and worship. A life of surrender that looks different from this world as we radically go about His kingdom in His power for His glory. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.